Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. This is a very significant historical election. This crisis is still damaging, especially Finnish and European economies very hardly, and that's an important reason to get more and more co- cooperation. And uh, what we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of uh, Tiwonge and uh, Stephen, and also we see Malawi violating its international commitments. Well, the position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting for marine species in particular. African Dialogue, a talk show where we cover anything and everything. Well, yes, you are listening to African Dialogue. It's a new week. Hey, this weekend in South Africa was very, very cold. In Johannesburg, though, and uh, we just had this hectic cold front. It was very rainy. It was just intense. But it's great to be here on this particular Monday because it's a bit sunny outside. So, hey, things are looking up. I hope that you had a great weekend, Africa. Wherever you're listening to us from the continent, thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us if you're listening to us on our shortwave frequency, 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to southern africa thank you as well if you're listening to us online on www.channelafrica.co.za thank you also for listening to us on our dstv channel there the audio bouquet still available that's channel 902 today we're going to be speaking about uh, somalia we know that uh, there's been a lot of conflicts that have been happening there but recently there seems to be a big um, terrorist uh, front that's happening there in southern somalia military sources in new Uganda and Somalia say at least 37 African Union soldiers have been killed. That was the latest statistics that came out uh, in an attack by Al-Shabaab militants in southern Somalia on uh, Tuesday last week. The attack by the Somali terrorist group occurred in a remote African Union base in the town of Janale. It was the largest loss sustained by the Ugandan contingent of the AU mission to Somalia, also known as uh, AMISOM. And uh, this is since 2012. Now, other Western soldiers also say that as many as 50 AU troops were killed. Now, the 22,000-strong United Nations-backed Amazon force consists of troops from Uganda, Burundi, Kenya, Ethiopia... Djibouti and Sierra Leone. Now, to help us look at this particular uh, situation of what's happening in uh, uh, South uh, Somalia, we are joined some by some experts on the land. We've got Kwezim Nabisa, who's the manager of interventions and accord, a South African-based organization really involved in conflict resolution, also in peacekeeping and preventative diplomacy throughout the continent. We also have Leticia Abeda, who's a researcher at the Africa Division at Human Rights Watch, and also a Somalia expert. Also, Helmut Heitman also joins us as a defense specialist. He's joining us once again. I remember we did a program with him here on uh, our program, African Dialogue. Thank you to all our guests for holding on and uh, really giving us uh, their time on this very busy Monday. We know that you could have been elsewhere, but you're here with us. Kwezi, let me start with you in terms of looking at this particular situation before I move on to Human Rights Watch. What is happening here? Do we know the real reasons behind these particular attacks taking place in South Somalia, uh, especially this Al-Shabaab militancy that seems to be strengthening in the last week or so? Thank you very much for the opportunity um, and good morning. I think that um, dedicated watchers of what's happening in Somalia would have picked up a trend in the last couple of months, a trend informed by the fact that the Somali government together with its international partners, especially AMISOM, the African Union Mission for Somalia, have made some significant strides in terms of reclaiming some of the territory and some of the regions and districts from Al-Shabaab. And as expected, and indeed uh, following a pattern of the last couple of years, whenever these strides or progress is made, Al-Shabaab does want to continue to capture the public's imagination by daring attacks, uh, by mounting ambushes, by... um, detonating roadside bombs as well as suicide uh, attacks. I think this is expected, especially if one looks at the progress that has been made in reinstituting the Somali National Army. Uh, We would all recall that the last couple of years in international forums and continental meetings, support towards the government of Somalia 
uh, has not only been looking at just institutions of governance, but have also very much expended resources and time and expertise in helping mm. the administration in Somalia develop its institutional or rather security institutional capacity so that uh, as we see government of Somalia taking control of the regions, we're also seeing the military and security presence in order to ensure stability in those regions. So this particular attack can be seen in light of, 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 of these developments. It's both a sign of progress, but at the same time, it's a reminder of the kind of potent uh, enemy or rather opponent that Al-Shabaab has proven to be. Mm. Let me move to you, Leitishia Beda from uh, Human Rights Watch. Thank you for joining us on our program. Now, well, uh, as uh, Kwezi highlights, Kwezi is citing the fact that this could be a scheme of intimidation by al-Shabaab. But we also know last month, Emerson admitted that peacekeepers had killed seven civilians from a family uh, in on the 31st of July in Markai, uh, an incident that damaged the standing of the peacekeeping forces and faced criticism from the Somali community and international human rights organizations. Is this related to this particular attack? Are we seeing this as a response? to uh, this admission by Amy Som, Leticia, what are your views there? Well, as, as I'm sure you will have seen, uh, Al-Shabaab, both people have made a link to... Well, I have to stop you there, Leticia. I apologize for that. Leticia, I have to stop you there because I think someone dropped their line, so it is damaging our our frequency. And let's see if we can we still have you there, Leticia. I don't know who dropped their particular line, but we also have one line. Leticia, are you still there with us? I am still here. Can can you hear me? Now I can hear you. Sorry to interrupt you. Just uh, let us uh, know what your views are. I was asking about that uh, particular attack, uh, Marka, and uh, is this a response to that? Well, as, um, as I was saying, I mean, Al-Shabaab in, in their response and in, in their public statements following the attack on the Amazon base did make the link. Now, obviously, that, that is a very useful propaganda link to make. I mean, I think more generally, I, I probably would not be as optimistic as, as the first speaker in terms of actually us seeing a context in which impunity, and I'm, I'm not only talking about impunity by Amazon forces, but also impunity for abuses carried out by the government, is really being tackled and challenged. And I think what has been interesting and what you have seen in some ways in terms of the response by the Somali community to the attacks in Merka is, um, I would say, a much more general public um, frustration with the fact that actually abuses against civilians by a range of actors, and and obviously also by Shabab amongst them, um, are not being tackled. And I think, you know, in terms of the government now moving forward, I mean, as as, as the first speaker said, there has obviously been a lot of discussion about how to create, um, you know, competent, credible institutions in Somalia to tackle impunity, to end abuses by um, government and other forces. But the truth is the reality on the ground is that so far um, Mm. a lot of people don't have confidence in the government, in the government forces to investigate, in the government forces to protect civilians, but also in the judiciary system to actually um, make sure that there is an end to, and there is some form of accountability by um, Mm. abuses by a range of actors. Mm. So I think we we both need to see some movement in terms of capacity building, protection of the judiciary, etc. But also I think it's a question of political will in terms of actually prioritizing issues Mm. around protection of civilians. Well, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back to the rest of our guests. I know that our very trusted correspondent, James Shimanyula, is also joining us uh, on the line as well. So we'll continue this conversation. We have to take a quick break and we'll get back to our guests. would like to get to know you, our listener. So we are asking you to tell us the country you're in and how you listen to the station. Is it via shortwave, internet or satellite? And what do you enjoy listening to? You can SMS us at plus two seven eight two double three two five nine oh five, Or email us. It's at info at channelafrica.org. You can also tell us via Facebook or tweet us on the handle at Channel Africa Numerical 1 or write to us at the address P.O. Box 
91313 Auckland Park, Johannesburg, 2006 Republic of South Africa. We look forward to hearing from you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is African Dialogue with me, Benjamin Mushata. I'm a reminder that you are listening to us on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. Thank you for streaming us live on www.channelafrica.co.za if you're listening to us uh, via our website. Or thank you to listening to us on DSTV. We're on Channel 902 there. But uh, today we're looking at a very complex situation that's taking place uh, in in, uh, South Somalia. We've seen that Al-Shabaab has been attacking uh, really much Amazon bases and uh, we're seeing that also there's been a questioning of uh, the AU force credibility during this particular time. But I know that also we've seen uh, really late reports that have been taking place there. Islamist militants, Al-Shabaab seized control of two towns over two days in southern Somalia and attacked two African Union convoys in the same region. A spokesperson of a group official just this past uh, Saturday. So we have seen some uh, uh, real, real force that's taking place in that particular part of our world and that part of our continent. Uh, let me come to James Shimanyula before I move on to our other guests. James, thank you for joining us. Uh, very well. I'm on the line now. Well, James, let us know the latest. Do you know the latest of what's happening in the southern parts of Somalia? We've heard reports about two towns uh, in southern Somalia being attacked and those two African Union convoys in the same region. Tell us a little bit more. What's happening in the area is that um, Al-Shabaab seems to have got an upper hand in um, uh, the so-called Lower Juba region. Uh, the middle of uh, Juba, mm. they ply between that and the lower Juba. In short, as you said rightly, uh, they are operating very actively in south. Uh, I mean, in the southern part of Somalia. Uh, what is happening right now is that they have uh, laid out a strategy to the extent that um, they amuse the uh, Somali National Army soldiers. Uh, targeting um, specifically African Union forces. And um, their strategy seems to have uh, borne fruit in the sense that um, they succeeded to attack them and uh, kill uh, several uh, African Union or Somali National Army soldiers. What is happening in Somalia? I've been covering Somalia, I think, from 1966, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, having been a journalist by that time and up to now. What is happening in Somalia right now is that um, we have soldiers that were drafted by Al-Shabaab and they were pardoned by uh, the authorities in the Mogadishu. They joined uh, uh, the National Army. They are the people creating room for easy targets when it comes to attacking the African Union forces. In short, we have malls, when I say malls, I mean cells mm. of soldiers that were at one time in Al-Shabaab, and then there was, I mean, they joined the National Army. They are actually the people who have been passing information to Al-Shabaab, when to attack, where to attack, how to approach the convoys, and so on and so forth. Mm. So, well, so long as we still have those people in the National Army mm. who had been trusted by the government, we'll still have Al-Shabaab very much alive, attacking the government and taking the government unawares. James, we'll scrutinize that viewpoint that you have there. I think that's a very serious uh, uh, point that you're making there, and its factuality can be questioned as well. But I want to m- move on to Helmut Heitman, who's the defense specialist. Uh, Helmut, I know we only have you for a few minutes or so, and I know I need to let you go very soon. Tell us a little bit about your assessment in terms of MSOM's mission in southern uh, Somalia and what's happening currently right now. You've heard some... Uh, 
things that were mentioned by James there about how uh, sometimes the government forces were linked to al-Shabaab. But what are your views in terms of what's happening there? Look, I think just to pick up on, on what he said now, uh, you're having a similar situation in Afghanistan mm. where elements of the army are in fact linked to, to Taliban. And that's led to some of their so-called blue-on-blue shootings or green-on-blue shootings. It's led to information leaks and the like. And it's, it's a problem in any sort of operation like that. Yeah, you know, away from plain conventional warfare, which is so much simpler. Um, Somalia itself specifically, in the 22,000 or so is the strength of Amazon, it sounds a lot. The reality is it's a small force for a country that size with a problem that size. Mm. And the, the Al-Shabaab guerrillas are not idiots. There are some very experienced people among them, not necessarily nice people, but very experienced and clever people. And they've adapted their tactics as they go along. I think the biggest challenge for the, the stabilization force there is the, the lack of air power. They cannot respond quickly enough when something does go wrong. An ambush on a, a while ago, for instance, Ethiopian army convoy. This attack now on the Ugandan base, previously it was a similar attack on a, on a Burundi army base. And by the time they can respond overland, apart from the risk of being ambushed, um, the whole thing is over. The base has been looted, some soldiers are killed, others dispersed. Much has happened to the Nigerians in, in Darfur back in 2007, mm. at Now There was an attack by over a thousand guerrillas on a company base. Similar to these sort of attacks in, in Somalia, they don't know the strength involved. But they're getting quite clever. They've used, for instance, a car bomb uh, detonated outside the gate of the base, which puts everybody in the base in shock because they're not expecting it. And then they swarm the base and they're in. And it's a done deal. So the real issue, I think, is the force is a bit small. It's actually, in many respects, very professional. Certainly the Ethiopian army and the, and the Ugandan army, I know a bit about. They, they're people you take seriously. I don't know too much about Burundi's army. Um, but without, without adequate air power, talking here surveillance aircraft that can pick up the movement of columns around the place. You know, a larger force of a couple of hundred levels is not that easy to hide. Mm. Um, but if you don't have surveillance aircraft, you don't find it. If you don't have ground attack aircraft, you can't engage them. If you don't have the helicopters to quickly fly a reaction force in, you can't respond quickly enough to an attack. And that's a primary challenge. I think we must, be, we must guard against thinking that the, the army's on troops and their officers are incompetent or anything. They simply face a very complex situation. They've done a pretty good job so far. A pretty good job so far. They they do need more air power, particularly. Mm. What do you think about the assertions made by Kwezi when we started the program? Kwezi was highlighting that, hey, there has been some form of progress and uh, sense of security that has been established by MSOM. Do you think so far since the establishment of the troops that we've seen a troop that has been kind of uh, doing its best, as, as you've hinted a little bit, on uh, making sure that we see a secure country? But I think they have done. They've done a pretty good job so far, given the, the, the challenge and given the, the restrictions caused by limited uh, on air power. They just don't have the transport facilities they need. Mm. But I think they've done a, a pretty good job, as long as everybody remembers this is only step one. And now, if you just assume, let's jump ahead a bit, assume they can actually neutralize al-Shabaab as a, as a real military threat. So the terrorism so... It's down to what the Brits in, in Ulster used to call an acceptable level of violence, the occasional bomb, the occasional attack. Let's assume they can achieve that in a, in a few years' time. Then still comes the issue of rebuilding a country, rebuilding cohesion among the people of that country, so that people actually learn to live with each other again. That is a really difficult part in any sort of internal war like this, and particularly one that's been going on for so long. Um, if you want to look, at, look for a miracle there, for instance, look at how that, the fact that Rwanda actually functions. Mm. You know, that, I mean, before Yugoslavia fell apart, mm. Rwanda has actually managed to glue itself together. It's far from a done deal, but it's, it's a sign of progress. So it can be done. Mm. But achieving it is going to require a lot of determination. It's going to require the forces being kept in-country for quite a while, with very careful management to make sure they don't become the trigger and the, the focus of, yet again, a renewed insurgency. Um, mm. But so far, so good. It's just we need to accept that it's going to take a long time. Mm. Well, thank you, Hel- Helmut, for joining us on our program. We really, uh, uh, really appreciate your expertise and your views there. That brings me back to you, Kwezi Mlibisa, from our court, in terms of some of the issues that were highlighted by Helmut in terms of, hey, uh, the, st- the, two th- the 22,000-strong army, Amazon, might seem like a large number, as you mentioned, but, hey, it's not as big in proportion size of the problem within Somalia. Your views, according to the strength uh, of the... Uh, force in itself. Do you think that more needs to be done to strengthen it? 
Well, certainly. Um, it's quite correct to say that 22,000 or even a doubling of that particular number will not necessarily mean that the African Union mission is actually uh, up to par to the task at hand. But let us try to get a little bit of perspective of what it is when we say that things are complicated. Mm. What are we talking about? We're talking of a, a country that is trying to put itself together. Uh, at this point in time, it's intended to have um, interim regional administrations that are the, uh, the response of uh, trying to get the governments extended to each and every part of the country. At last count, we're counting five uh, interim regional administrations, which means that uh, you are looking at uh, provincial legislatures, if we were to take the South African analogy, that are still going to uh, demarcate the country according to uh, representing everybody uh, within that particular country. That's mm-hmm. the first thing that we're confronted with. Secondly, the Somali National Army, uh, just like the rest of the institutions of the country, has ne- never really existed as a coherent uh, unit that can provide safety and security for everybody. So this is the second most important thing that, uh, that, that the African Union mission has actually been in place to try and assist. Now, they've done a lot. They've trained a number of units. And the points that were raised earlier on in terms of uh, some of the, of the people that they've had to incorporate come from Al-Shabaab and mm-hmm. continue to pose a threat, mm-hmm. it's fair. But let us look at the assessments of Amisom itself, how the African Union uh, uh, assesses uh, it, 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 its performance this far. It has shown to be consistently uh, concerned about the issues of protection of civilians. It has shown to be consistently concerned about issues of conduct of their own forces in terms of how do they relate to the local population as well as the, 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 the host country's nascent armed forces. I think it's, it's, it's fair to say that what has happened in the last couple of weeks is a source of concern, not only of Amisom, but also the, the Somalis themselves. Mm-hmm. I think that the reports emanating out of the country is the fact that they've actually fired the previous chief of the army and appointed Mohammed Ahmed, uh, Aden Ahmed as, as the new army. I think as a way of trying to show the level of seriousness that many of us expect to come from the government, but more importantly, the agency that what Amisom is doing in, uh, finally will only be a proper responsibility of the properly constituted National Army in Somalia. Mm-hmm. I don't think that they are there yet, but I think that we need to acknowledge when there is movement. Well, I'll come to Letitia as we uh, come back from a particular break after this uh, to really look at uh, uh, that particular context that was highlighted by Kwezi in terms of the military in itself, but also the human rights aspect of things and how people are being affected in Somalia on the ground. I know that Human Rights Watch is very good at that kind of stuff, looking at what's happening on the ground. Hey, this is another terrorist ag- attack on on people, on our one of our countries on the continent. Hey, do you think that uh, we're actually failing when it comes to the fight against terrorism? Let us know your thoughts. Plus two seven seven zero seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Let me say that again for you. Plus two seven zero seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Want to hear your thoughts? What do you think about this particular situation? Do you think that we're winning the fight against terrorism on the continent? Plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Let's take a quick break and then we'll be back after this. Get to know Channel Africa and all the people who bring news, views, and great African entertainment. You can now catch Channel Africa on DSTV Audio Bouquet, Channel 902. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Benjamin Moshatama. Remember that uh, if you are away from your shortwave radio uh, service, you can actually join us uh, online on www.channelafrica.co.za. On our website, we do have a live streaming facility there. Hey, our website is also very helpful in other ways. You can see our multimedia section there where you can actually stream our past programs in Chinyanja, French, Portuguese, and other African.
African languages that we broadcast here in Channel Africa. Today we're looking at uh, South Somalia, looking at uh, really the contestation of power there in terms of military forces there. We know Al-Shabaab has been attacking there and it seems to be a serious situation. And I want to move on now to Leticia Bader, who's the researcher at the Africa Division at Human Rights Watch and also in a Somalia expert. Uh, uh, coming to you, uh, Leticia, already uh, some of our guests have looked at uh, really the more um, militant aspect of things, the more military aspect of what's happening in, in, in South uh, Somalia, but also in par- other parts of uh, Somalia. But during this attack on the 1st of September, Al-Shabaab claimed that it also killed 70 people in the South, which are normal civilians, which came roughly a year after its leader, Ahmed Abdi Gudin, was killed in a U.S. airstrike. Tell us a little bit more about the human rights elements that are taking place on the ground and the humanitarian crisis that we seeing in some aspects in the country? Well, I mean, in, in many ways, I mean, attacks, targeted attacks of civilians by al-Shabaab um, have, have continued to take place both in areas which they uh, still control, but also in many of the towns which Amazon and the Somali national government um, or allied forces or militia have actually taken over. Um, And and this is obviously one of the massive concerns we have um, ongoing. Um, And also in terms of uh, of the broader picture, I would say, at the moment, on on the regional level, there is more and more of a push, I would say, particularly in Kenya, which is the country where we are based, um, in terms of returning Somalis to Somalia, making claims that the situation on the ground is feasible for such returns. But the truth is, you know, targeted killings of civilians continue. Civilians continue to be killed in a whole range of fighting which is happening on the ground. As as, as Kwesi was mentioning earlier, the effort to basically establish new regional administrations has also been very violent. Over the last two years, we have seen what has often been depicted as the reignition of clan fighting, but which was very much politicized and was about trying to determine who would have a seat at the negotiating table around the creation of these new regional states. And what happened each time in the midst of this fighting was that civilians were displaced, civilians were killed, and I mean, in terms of, you know, one of the massive, I would say, human rights, but also humanitarian problems in South Central Somalia at the moment is the massive displaced population. And a lot of those who are displaced, I mean, we have 1.1 million people displaced inside of South Central Somalia. A lot of those are actually in Mogadishu. Um, so these are areas where, in theory, government has access, where the humanitarian community has access. And yet we've continued to document massive abuses against that population, including by government forces. And I think it is important to, when, when we are coming back to this whole question of, you know, government capacity to protect its population, etc. I mean, we have actually seen government forces in Mogadishu um, actively violating the rights of thousands, tens of thousands of displaced people by forcing them to move um, to areas which are very unsafe. Um, but I, do, I, I would just like to come back to one of the comments Quezzi made earlier about the, the role of Amazon and, and the importance Amazon has given to the protection of civilians over the years. And I think we, we can all recognize that the discourse around this has changed, that little by little Amazon has been willing to put in place mechanisms to deal with um, civilian casualties. But it's taken a very long time. And what I would say, I mean, over the last year or so, we've been doing a lot of research into what exactly concretely are the investigations which Amazon is doing into civilian casualties. And, you know, once again, I mean, I think in the last month or two we have seen, it's often a mixed bag. And so, you know, in the cases of civilian casualties in Mecca, we saw an initial complete denial by the Amazon forces of very serious allegations against them. Then, thankfully, the head of Amazon, you know, after an investigation did speak out and say, you know, we recognize that there have been silly killings of civilians. But I think there's a lot of work still to do, both in terms of troop-contributing countries really being willing to investigate abuses mm. against civilians by their forces, share information with mm. Amazon, but really to prioritize this issue. And I think, you know, what we have been seeing in the public media, I mean, the Somali media, is an increasing 
dissatisfaction with, with the willingness really to take this on. And, and given that Amazon has been given such an important mentoring role in terms of the, you know, the Somali forces, in terms of building the capacity of the Somali forces, I think them really playing a role model in terms of longer-term impact in Somalia is, is absolutely critical. Mm. Let me move that to James Shimanyula in terms of what you're introducing there, Laetitia. And you highlighted actually earlier on when we started the program about the trust uh, to government forces that civilians have and also to the Amazon crew. Uh, James Shimanyula, how is the atmosphere there in terms of people's trust towards Amazon and also to government troops? Well, the people of Somalia, first of all, I must uh, just add that um, I spoke about Lower Juba at the outset, mm. and um, it's just north of uh, Boni Forest where Kenya, as we speak now, has launched a massive search for Al-Shabaab. It's just on the border with the, um, with the Kenya. So that is, um, Boni Forest is in the Kenya, and it's where Al-Shabaab are hiding right now. Hence the search for them, a major one that has never been seen before. Mm. So that is just um, uh, one uh, part of um, uh, battle against Al-Shabaab. And then we have to bear in mind or take into consideration the fact that um, since Al-Shabaab were thrown out of Mogadishu, they are in Lower Juba, that is um, southwest of um, um, uh, Mogadishu. Mm. They are in the middle of Juba, and then they get up close to Kenya's uh, Elwaka town. And then the area that they are more notorious is Lower Shabele, which is um, southwest, and then uh, Bay and the Gedo region. So those are just, you know... Uh, snippets just to help you get the picture. Mm, now, thank you about for that, the trust, James. people in Somalia, especially the ordinary people, uh, trust the government as much as the government trusts the people because they usually pass information to them about movement of Al-Shabaab. They are very good people that are very loyal to the government. However, in those people, we have Al-Shabaab elements. So you find that even if the trust were to be 100%, we can put it at maybe 50-50. So there is mistrust that um, originates in uh, villages where people live and the places where Al-Shabaab have planted their cells. So it's very, very difficult. And then if I may just um, add a point on the strength of Amisom, so we good. have about 22,000 soldiers. We need to beef up, or Africa Union has to beef up its forces so that we have a bigger force, say, of 50,000. And then they give them equipment. As uh, one of uh, our speakers said, uh, we have to have um, uh, military aircraft uh, surveilling the areas so that when something happens, they are there on the spot. They don't have communication equipment. Mm. Uh, the rebels have some of the most sophisticated equipment. So those are the areas that I just wanted to mention before we amplify on uh, what you asked me. If I've forgotten something, just remind me and I'll fill it in. Mm. James, just uh, in a minute or so, just, uh, you know, Leticia was highlighting some uh, very much... Uh, um, Worrying factors about uh, the Amazon crew. We know that it just came out and did mention that uh, it, there was an incident where the peacekeepers admitted to killing some civilians in the country. So I'm sure that creates a bit of a mistrust of the people with Amazon and also government troops moving certain people from parts of Somalia into certain areas that are remote remote, and also unsafe for them to stay. I'm sure that also creates another barrier for the trust between civilians and government forces. So can you elaborate on those particular points that she made there? Uh, you know, what I can um, remember or what I've been seeing is that there are places that uh, villagers or ordinary people have been cooperating with the government, but they seem to be harboring Al-Shabaab. An example is um, southwest, I think, of Mogadishu mm. in an area called Marka. Mm. And then we have another place called Barawe, if I'm not mistaken, if I can have my mental map reading well. And then we have other areas you go westward as if you are going to the Kenyan border. It's in the Bay region 
I think it's a place called uh, Deniso. You have heard about fighting there. Lastly, we have Bahadere, which is uh, in um, partly in Ghetto and partly in the Bay. Mm. Now, we have about seven areas in rural Somalia where Al-Shabaab are very active, but some people living in those areas have not been trusting Al-Shabaab as they are defenders. In other words, they don't think Al-Shabaab can defend them. They would rather rely on the Somali National Army within Amisom than the Al-Shabaab. Okay. So this mistrust has created a situation where when something happens, like Al-Shabaab attacking uh, government troops or, mm. you know, wailing them, uh, it happens that the government sends their troops. And during the battle with Al-Shabaab, they kill civilians. And at times, they just, you know, go to villages and start killing civilians. Mm. And these atrocities have been committed for a very long time. It's just that they are coming to light uh, at certain times, and others are not even recorded. So that's the much I can tell you about uh, uh, the safety of citizens or ordinary people when it comes to searching al-Shabaab or in areas where al-Shabaab are operating. And it's a big area, by mm. the way. Well, I've got two... Okay. Yeah, I've got two minutes and a half now left of our program and listening to this whole thing, it, it seems very complex as was highlighted by Kwesi and Leticia when we started this particular program in itself. But Kwesi, coming back to you, just in a minute or so, in a minute, can you tell us, my thinking now is, I'm asking myself, is there hope for Somalia? Thanks again, Benjamin. Yes, there, there has to be hope. We need to be hopeful. But I think that we need to be hopeful uh, uh, whilst we are being realistic. Realistically, there is no amount of military deployment that is going to help Somalis find the solutions to their problems. So an outright military victory of al-Shabaab is not necessarily uh, within reach. We need to see more em- em- emphasis and investment on helping the federal government of Somalia to work better with the interim regional structures so that governance can be extended right through the territory of that country. And we need to move away, I think, as outsiders and observers from the comfort of an outright military victory or solution and start focusing on really uh, uh, ensuring that the, the institutional capacities in Somalia, because they've been there. I mean, uh, people in Somalia have shown resilience by ensuring that they continue to have social services as poor as they, those may have been. That is the starting point for us to invest in. Mm, well, what uh, what Amisom was intended to go in and do was to ensure that we do reduce the, 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 the strength and the spread of al-Shabaab. And we, we have done relatively well as the African continent, including uh, in being supportive of, of, of Somalis. Because that, if, you, mm, if you think of, of, mm. of what's happening in Jubaland, whereby the, pers- the person who's president right now in Jubaland used to be part of the negative uh, elements that were fighting the government, it means that we do have uh, instances of reconciliation and of sober-minded mm. thinking, and that is what needs to carry on. Kwezi, thank you for giving us your views. Leticia, just in 30 seconds, I've got 30 seconds remaining. Is there hope? Um, well, yes. I mean, I think, once again, this notion of trust, and I think, you know, building trust in government institutions and other mm-hmm. actors linked to the government is going to come with, first and foremost, ending the cycle of impunity. And, and actually, for people, whether it's at the local level, regional level, or, or throughout South Central Somalia, to start to feel that, you know, their representatives are actually putting um, in place systems which are going to protect them and, 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 and respect their rights. Well, that's how I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you to you, Leticia Bader, who is the researcher in the Africa Division at Human Rights Watch, also a Somalia expert. Thank you as well to uh, James Simonula joining us as our Channel Africa correspondent. And Kwezi Mlibisa, thank you for joining us. Uh, Kwezi is the manager of Interventions and Accord, a South African-based organization involved in conflict resolution, peacekeeping, and preventative diplomacy throughout the continent. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll uh, also come back to our business. News. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. 
Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, we keep you updated on what's happening on the continent of Africa. And just to give you an update on what's happening in terms of business news on the continent with Anne Musa standing by. A very good morning to you, Kenya's IMM Holdings planned to buy a locally owned Giro commercial bank for an undisclosed amount. INM Holdings, which has stakes in banks in Kenya, Tanzania, Rwanda and Mauritius, plans to merge Giro with its subsidiary INM Bank. Their transaction is subject to approval from the central bank. Ethiopia's Commodity Exchange plans to double the items it trades by next year, this after introducing an electronic platform to replace its manual system. Launched in 2008, the exchange trades seven commodities, including coffee, two of Ethiopia's top exports using an open outcry system. Ethiopia's Africa's biggest coffee producer with output of about 450,000 tons. The exchange has so far focused on the country's main cash crops. Ethiopia's pride itself on being the birthplace of coffee. The livelihoods of more than 15 million people depend on its production. Ethiopia Commodity Exchange Chief Executive Emmaus Isitu. So basically we've been trading on the traditional open cry pits where buyers and sellers meet on the on the pits to make the contract of trade. Today we're we're uh, announcing the shift from the traditional trading pit to the electronic trading platform and uh, this is going to allow us to be able to trade much more efficiently much more robustly much more broadly and accommodate uh, a vast number of new commodities uh, that we have not yet accommodated within the exchange so far. Mining and commodities giant Glencore says it will suspend dividends, sell assets and raise 2.5 billion US dollars in a new share issue. This as it aims cut aims to cut its net to $20 billion by the end of next year. The London-listed company has been under pressure to cut debt, which stood at $29.6 billion at the end of June. This as prices for its key products, copper and coal, sunk to more than six-year lows. Glencore says 78% of the proposed equity insurance is underwritten by American investment banks and Morgan Stanley. Zambia says it will not allow its currency to collapse and may intervene to regulate markets. This comes as the kwacha fell to new record lows against the U.S. dollar. Zambia's kwacha currency has been hit by falls in the price of its main export, copper and power crisis. The central bank's failure to intervene and stem the kwacha slide has triggered panic dollar demand. The Zambian kwachas also come under pressure due to delays in paying some government contractors. Meanwhile, South Africa's rand has turned softer against the U.S. dollar after central bank data showed only a slight improvement in net foreign exchange reserves. During the month of August, the Blue Chip 20 future index is up 0.7%, suggesting the local would open at at least 316 points higher. Government bonds came under early pressure at the start of trade. The central bank has long admitted it does not have enough reserves to try and defend the rand which has shed more than 12% this year against the U.S. dollar. Looking at the financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 13.84 to the South African Rand, at 10.82 to the Botswana Pula, and at 9.95 to the Zambian Kwacha. 
It's also trading at 0.65 to the British pound and at 0.89 to the euro. Looking at the commodities, gold trading at $1,226, platinum is at $1,014 an ounce, and the spot price of Brent crude oil is at $51.99 a barrel. And that's the economic update. Sam Kluza is standing by to give us our sports news. In your sport, Nigeria men's senior team head coach Sunday Olise has described the goalless draw against Tanzania as satisfactory, considering it was the first of his game in charge of the Super Eagles. Taifa Stars hosted the Super Eagles at the National Stadium in Dar es Salaam on Saturday. Channel Africa's Tony Ubani reports. The Nigeria Football Federation president, Amaju Pinik, refused to be despondent following Saturday's 0-0 draw between the Super Eagles and Taifa Stars of Tanzania. Rather, he saw a lot of positives in the result and has called on Nigerians from far and near to excite patients as new Head coach Sunday Olise gradually steadies his ship. Nigeria were expected to take three points away from Dar es Salaam on Saturday, but came away with a point as the race to the 2017 Africa Cup of Nations finals in Gabon gathers team. Even with the, the draw, Pinnick remains confident the Eagles will get there. It was a good match in the sense that Olise has now seen his first set of players and he has seen the good and the bad ones. If we had been able to play a friendly match before this game, he would have certainly had great knowledge of each and every one of his players. South Africa's Bafana Bafana disaster start to the 2017 Africa Cup of Nations qualifiers continued at the Stade Olympic in Nogot as a 10-man South African side suffered its most embarrassing results under Ephraim Sheikh's Mashaba, losing by three goals to one in Mauritania. This result leaves Bafana's hope of qualifying for Gabon tournament in doubt as Cameroon leads Group M with six points following a 1-0 win over Gambia. And it will take a serious miracle for Bafana to come back into the picture, but Sheikh's Mashaba is still hopeful that they can turn things around in this group this was a must win for us but uh, yes we're looking at winning this but not it's not a, everything it's not lost we still have another four games which is now putting more pressure on us if we look for games it's 12 points we've got to make it a point that we snatch the maximum Qualifying for the Gabon showpiece as well as the 2018 FIFA World Cup in Russia forms part of Mashaba's mandate. And at this rate, Mashaba should be knowing that the nation is starting to lose patience with the World Cup qualifying preliminary stage tie against Angola coming up in November. When you keep on progressing and you're not getting results, it gives you that, that worry and a concern that how are we going to do? Because the more you lose, the more spirit goes down in the team. But if you win one, draw one, it gives you that courage that, yeah, at least to our own track. And now in hockey, South African women's hockey team head coach Sheldon Rosted believes that the just-ended interprovincial hockey tournament, which was won by Southern Houting, will broaden his base from which to choose players. Rosted believes that the selected players from the tournament can be drafted into the national team setup. We've been uh, looking to obviously create two squads uh, that we'll, we'll have now, the, the SA women's side, and then with that also running an SAA side. Um, where we'll be uh, making sure that we're getting the experience coming through and really focusing on the younger talent coming through, um, especially now with a focus on 2022. And now in golf, England's Lee Slattery has won the M2M Russia Open by a shot from Argentina's Estanislao Goya. Let's get more from Mark Tompkins. England's Lee Slattery has won the M2M Russian Open after a final round 69 saw him finish on 15 under par, one shot clear of the Argentinian Estanislao Goya. Goya led coming down the straight, but two bogeys in three holes saw him slip back. Slattery chipped in on 17, and that proved to be the turning point. He holed out for par on 18, despite Goya getting a birdie, and the Englishman was able to celebrate just his second victory on the European Tour. A good day, too, for the defending champion, David Horsey. A 68 for him in the final round saw him move to 13 under and into third place. And Ireland's Michael Hoey, a 7-under par round of 64, saw him 
finish in a tie for fourth place. Jake Roos, the South African, set a new club record here with a 63 earlier on to post an early clubhouse lead on 11 under par. But this was all about Slattery and holding his nerve right at the end. And he holed out for victory and he'll take his place on the rest of the European Tour, having lost his card last year. Slattery finished on 15 under par. Stanislaw Goya in second on 14 under. And finally, in motorsports, Lewis Hamilton celebrated his 50th race for Mercedes with a flawless win in the Italian Grand Prix at Monza yesterday to stretch his lead to 53 points in the Formula One Championship. This is how Lewis Hamilton responded after the race. Unbelievable fans here. Um, I couldn't have done it without my team. I don't know if anyone can hear us, but this team is just remarkable. And what we've achieved together is, is, is so special. So I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for them for really working so hard through the weekend through the last weeks, through the whole year, to give me the card that I had today. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and back to Benjamin Moshatama. Well, uh, that's how we wrap it up. Thank you for joining us here on our program today. Remember, we'll be back with you tomorrow. I think tomorrow we'll be looking at the refugee crisis that is a big story in Europe right now. But we know that it's not a Europe problem. It's really a problem that is taking place all over the continent. The refugee crisis is a world problem. It just doesn't belong to Europe. So we'll be speaking about that tomorrow. But thank you for joining us. Remember, African Dialogue comes to you every Monday to Thursday, 1100 hours Central African time. Remember to join us on Facebook. We've got a Facebook page called Channel Africa, or you can tweet us at Channel Africa One, or you can find us also on our uh, African Dialogue uh, handle that's at African Dialogue on Twitter. So thank you for joining us. Until tomorrow, God bless. We go out with some music from uh, Papa Wemba.